Would you turn with me please to our Bible reading in Isaiah chapter 53. Thank Thomas for leading the service. We commend him to your prayers and remember him in his studies in the Whitfield College that the Lord will bless him and do him good there. We're looking tonight at verse 2. This is the verse we referred to during the week in our Bible study and it really struck my mind again. It says about the Messiah, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him there's no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah 53 has been often said is more like a witness account than a historical account. It's more a testimony than a prophecy of what happened at the cross of Calvary. This Isaiah 53 has come to be known as the fourth servant song of Isaiah and it has five sections. The introduction is in chapter 52 and then we have the first the second section in chapter 53 verse 1 to 3 and this second part of the song it sets forth the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his rejection as the servant Messiah. In verse 1 there's recorded a lamentation. We can empathize with it. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Who hath believed our report? It's like a preacher on a Monday morning. He's reviewing the weekend that's gone by and he's saying, well, who has believed the preaching of the word of the living God? And it's a humbling truth, eh, men and women, eh, to reckon once again this evening that only those to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed can believe in the servant Messiah. What an amazing thing it is that that mighty arm of power, of grace and salvation has been revealed to us. Does it make us any better than anybody else? No, but it makes us a lot different by the grace of God. Our text focuses our mind upon the cause and the ground of unbelief. In verse 2, we have, I think, one of the most amazing descriptions in the Bible of the lowliness and the meanness of Christ in his estate of humiliation. When the Jews contemplated the coming of the promised Messiah, (coughs) they had in their mind someone who would come with outward show and pomp and ceremony, and that he would outlast and outdo all of the monarchs that went before him. They had in their mind's eye something of the glory of the reign of David, something of the the riches and the splendor of the reign of Solomon. And instead the Holy Spirit revealed to Isaiah that he would grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, someone who had no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him those are amazing words when Christ came into this world as God incarnate in human form he didn't come in the way that the world expected him to come or anticipated him to come he was rejected he was rejected and believed on only by a few in comparison to the multitudes of his day 
So in verse 1, having expressed his surprise at the scarcity of the believers, here was this wonderful Messiah, and yet how few had believed on him to the saving of their soul. In verse 2, this is linked with his appearance. So here he is, who has believed our report, to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. Uh, and now, uh, linking in with this in verse 2, we have the appearance of the servant Messiah on earth. And what does he look like? Uh, and how does he come and present himself before the multitudes? What, what a description is given to us here. And it's a description I would like to spend a little time examining with you tonight. <clears throat> because the very same reasons that Isaiah outlined that men and women didn't believe in his day are the same reasons that men and women don't believe in our day. So we learn first of all that Christ's lowliness and his lack of pomp and splendor were partly the reason the world rejected him. Look at how he was revealed to the world at his birth. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. He was a tender plant, just a little sapling. He, he was not a tall tree with sturdy branches and something that could withstand the howling gales and winds. It's very usual in the Bible to describe great men and they're described under this imagery of something that's strong and mighty. In the book of Daniel, for example, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, the king of Babylon is described in this manner. The tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it was meat for all, under... Uh, the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation. It is thy, O king. What a description. Thou art grown and become strong. This mighty tree in which lodged a host of life, and through which a host of life was sustained. Uh, the word of God describes this was the king of Babylon. But now we look at the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he appears very different to the king of Babylon. He is just like a tender plant sprung up out of dry ground. He was a root out of dry ground. This is put figuratively, of course, for Christ is such a branch as also to be termed likewise as a root. And he's thus presented in other scriptures too in the closing book, Revelation 5 and 5. He's described as the root of David. There are some who uh, denote this as referencing his virgin birth, but others refer it to the dead and the withered stalk of David's house. Long was David's glory gone. Long was the glory of David's ancestry gone. It was just something, a vague memory in the past of the history of the children of Israel. But though David's great family had been brought low, and the only visible representation of it was Joseph. A lowly carpenter from, from Nazareth uh, and his young wife Mary. Mere peasants in the eyes of the world. And yet from the, the root of the stock of David would come forth the Messiah. The great Lamb of God. And out of the decayed roots of Jesse's ancient family sprung up this tender branch. This tender plant. And it's amazing that Christ should come into the world in such a manner. He came out of dry ground. 
His birth really was an impossibility, but God made it possible. There's very few things grow in dry ground, but Christ came out of the dry ground, the root of the, the family of Jesse. And it tells us here in the world, when he was born into the world, that he shall grow up before him. Before him. I, I think if we look at verse 1, the him is Jehovah. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Uh, and Christ, in his time, he grew up. He grew up before his father. It was by God's special planning. It was by God's special appointment. Everything about his birth, his home, his, his upbringing, his background, it was all before the Lord. The eyes of the world didn't really bother very much about what happened in that carpenter's workshop in Nazareth. But the eyes of Almighty God were upon it and planned every detail and planned every event concerning it. Oh, how lowly was his coming. Look at how he appeared to the world in his life. He grew up in Nazareth. He launched out into his public ministry. And what did the world say about him? They looked at him and they said, he has no beauty. He has no former comeliness. Now I do not believe that these words literally meant that Christ had no form or comeliness physically. He was the perfect man. But what is referred to here was what was his perceived presence in the world. He didn't come nor did he live with the outward pomp and glory which they imagined would be a, a reflection of his royal status. And the world found it incredible. You see, they, they couldn't really believe it. That this lowly uh, ancestry of David's family from Nazareth, a carpenter's son, the son of the carpenter, that he was born king of the Jews. And they laughed it. They, they ridiculed it. They, 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 they made scorn of it. This was how he appeared to the world. He was an object of scorn and ridicule. He says he's the king of kings and the king of the Jews. But look at his family. Look where he's from. He, he has no prestige. He has no power. He has no presence. But what a difference to those who know him as their Lord and as their saviour. I love those words in the Song of Solomon. You know that lovely description of Christ in chapter 5 and the summary of it there is in verse 16, the conclusion of it all, after that wonderful description, what do they say about Christ? He's altogether lovely. What does the world say about him? He's no form. That means he's no presence. He's no power. The world says about him, he's no beauty. He's just a rough neck from Nazareth who makes a cheap furniture for peasant people. That's basically the summary. But the church says about him, he's all together lovely. How do you see him tonight? Do you see him as one with no form or comeliness? Or do you see him as altogether lovely? Because that tells me what your heart is and how your heart views the blessed Lamb of God. Look at also how he was desired by the world. It says there's no beauty that uh, they should desire him. This is a damning commentary, isn't it, upon sinful hearts. Sinners don't desire the Lord. Don't you for one moment think 
that the ungodly and mourn desired the Lord, the ungodly and in the Ulster deny the Lord, the ungodly in this world in which we live in desire the Lord. They certainly do not. Because Romans 8 and 7 and 8 tells us the carnal mind is enmity against God. That's what's going on in the heart of the ungodly. They're battling against the Lord. They're fighting against the Lord. There's enmity in their heart against the Lord. Enmity, hatred, variance, malice against the Lord. Do they desire him? No, they hate him. So then they that are in the flesh, Romans 8 and 8 says, cannot please God. That's a startling summary, isn't it, of the heart of the unsaved man or woman. The carnal mind does not desire the Lord Jesus Christ. And once, dear brother and sister, your mind had the same opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ as my mind had. There's no desire in our souls for him. There was nothing that would draw us out after him. We judged the matter externally and internally. There was no love in the heart for Christ. Secondly, let's learn from this text that the Lord carries on his work in this world also through lowly and humble means. The description given in verse 2 is not only of Christ personally but also of Christ mystically. It's not only a picture of how the unbelieving world sees Christ, but also sees the cause of Christ. His church in the world is sprung up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. And there's no form or comeliness that the world sees in it. The world recognises success. The world recognises money, prestige, numbers, influence. That's what the world recognises. But a plant which grows out of dry ground, the world doesn't recognize at all. If we look at the contrast, you put a plant into fertile ground, you can explain the reason why that plant would grow. It has been planted well, it's been nurtured well, it's been looked after well, uh, and those of a horticultural mind could explain all of the, 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 the biology behind all of that. But... Our saviour is different. Like his church, he's a root out of dry ground. And Christ and the church in the world today, as it was in the days of Isaiah, they do not survive because of favourable circumstances. Oftentimes we think our, Christian, our, our country has lost its Christian moorings and bearings, and it has. But does that mean the church will not survive? The church is planted in dry ground. The church is not in a favourable environment. The church is in a hostile environment. And yet it flourishes. And yet it grows. And yet it brings forth fruit unto life that is eternal. Our Saviour is a root out of dry ground. As to the means by, by which he chose for, to propagate the faith. There's nothing of pomp and earthly circumstance in the person of Christ. And so likewise, there's nothing of earthly pomp or circumstance in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the Pope of Rome going to Sudan. 
We see the ecumenical apostate clergymen of Anglicanism and Presbyterianism in Scotland going with them. And all the world wonders at them. All the world wonders at them. And the government meet them. And the thousands come to hear them. And yet I know Sudanese Christians in southern Sudan who are persecuted for their faith and are refugees outside their own country today. They're the root out of dry ground. Think for a moment of the means of grace that Christ is pleased to use. You know, there's nothing, there is nothing of pomp and circumstance in the plain preaching of the word of God. And that's why I, I know there are multitudes today, think it's a vain exercise coming together just to hear somebody open a Bible and preach from it. But that's what God has given us. Uh, these are the means that God has been pleased to use. It's the root out of dry ground. We, we'll meet just in a little moment or two around this table. We'll partake of these blessed emblems of the crucified. Just emblems. The wine. The bread. The representations of the, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the world doesn't understand it. And the world looks on upon it and sees the simplicity of it and, and thinks it's, it's utter folly. But God uses these means... These means to dispense his grace to multitudes all over the world. We know in Romans fourteen seventeen the Bible says, The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. In the Old Testament, remember the tabernacle? We had the Reverend Johnson here some years ago and explained about the high priest's garment and the tabernacle and all that went with it. And it was all gold within but it was covered with badger skins without. And I think this is the stumbling block to multitudes. They look at the rough badger skin without. They don't see any glory. They don't know about the gold within. But you have to enter in to know of the, the preciousness of the gospel truth and the preciousness of the doctrines of the word of God and the truth of the word of God. The gold within. The means which God uses, they're spiritual means. They're not fleshly means. The Lord never uses means which appeals to the basic carnal instincts of men. I couldn't emphasize that enough. The Lord does not use those means. Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This carnal presentation that we have in the broad evangelical church today, I want to say to you, they're not the weapons that I know of in the New Testament. If the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, the weapons that we do have, they're mighty. The preaching of the word of God, the ordinances, the sacraments of the church, prayer and praise, they're mighty. They'll do all that God intended to do through them. I was greatly challenged to read again these words of C.H. Spurgeon, they tie in so nicely with uh, our, our studies on scriptural worship that we've been doing over the, the Wednesday nights and, and weeks gone by. And you'll forgive a long quote, but just let me share it with you. Our Lord trusted in no measure or degree to the charms of music for the establishing of his throne. He is not giving to his disciples the slightest intimation 
that they're to employ the attractions of the concert room to promote the kingdom of heaven. If our Lord had arranged a religion of fine shows and pompous ceremonies and gorgeous architecture and enchanting music and the like, we could have comprehended its growth. But he is a root out of dry ground and he owes nothing to these. Our holy religion knows nothing whatsoever to any carnal means as far as they're concerned because it's a root out of dry ground. What a warning shot over the church of Christ again today. Let us hear this this prophet from a, a bygone generation and let's apply the truth to our own day and generation. The church is not sustained through carnal means. The church is not through st- sustained through worldly means. If that's how we have to do it here in the Money Dyer Road, we better close the door and go away home tonight because we would be far better at home sitting here in this building. The church is sustained and kept by God himself. We can write over the, the, the work. This work was wrought of God. And we want it to be wrought of God. Every part of it. Every advancement in it. I want to say to any in the gathering tonight. Unconverted friends with us. Do not despise the means of grace. Do not despise the simplicities. Of the spiritual realities that God has given to us. And brethren and sisters, you and I who know and love the Lord, let's hold on to them. We've been learning about that from Proverbs 4 in the last few weeks. Let's hold on to instruction and don't let go of it. And let's teach the generation coming behind us. This is how God intended it. And this is what God wants us to do and we can't do anything else. I want you to thirdly notice with me. Some advice as to how to overcome the prejudices of the world against the lowliness of the gospel. If the ungodly immediately start off with an inbuilt prejudice against the gospel, because remember, the carnal mind is enmity against God, then how do we overcome it? Humanly speaking, we can't. We, humanly speaking, we can't. There's no amount of, of uh, pleasing people trying to... If you can't please them, then appease people or entertain people. It's going to change people. Get that. The church has not got that today. There's no amount of doing it will succeed. So what can we do? Well, we can look to the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and apply it savingly and effectually to the hearts and lives of those who come to hear the truth. The Spirit of the age focuses in on externals but the church ought to focus in on the internals the internals it's what the Lord does in hearts and lives that counts and that's what will count on the judgment day the emphasis is being put on the outward whilst we should put it on the inward Let's not cease to cry unto God to send his Holy Spirit upon the preached word. That's the answer, men and women, and that's revival. That's what God has done in days gone by. He's taken simple men, ordinary men, and he's put a spirit in those men, and he's made them mighty instruments, mighty, sharp, threshing instruments in his hands, and men that have been used greatly and mightily of God. The plain gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's all we need to proclaim. That's all we have to proclaim. 
I like the story of, of Samson in the book of Judges chapter 14 and he found something. He found the secret hive of bees in the carcass of the lion. Oh, and how sweet the honey was to his taste. And he drew it forth and he gave it to his family. And oh, how sweet it was to them. And I said to all the dear unsaved, the gospel is sweet when the soul tastes it. And if you've never tasted it in your soul, you don't know the secret of it. We need to seek the intervention, the help of the Holy Spirit. We need to exercise faith in the word proclaimed. Let us not set aside the word of God. Let us not set it aside either in the worship of God or in our own lives personally or in our own service. When we go to speak to people about the Lord, what are we going to speak to them about? The word of God. I want when we come to the end of Psalm 130, our memorization of that, before we come to the mission, before Easter, I want to go over that Romans road with you. I want everybody to memorize that Romans road. I want you to have those verses in your mind. When you speak to some unsafe person, that you just have the scripture there at hand to speak to them about. To speak to them about their soul. To speak to them about the one who died to save their soul. To speak to them how they can appropriate salvation for their souls. To speak to them about how they can confess what they believe in their heart before this unbelieving world. Let's not give up God's word. And don't judge things by outward appearances. We were talking this morning about not judging. We need to not judge the work of God by externals. Let us not do that. Comparisons are awful, often made. And as I've said in weeks gone by, here's a man down the road here and he's preaching away and he's faithfully sounding forth the word of life and here's someone else in another part of the town and he has made the, 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 the pulpit into a stage. It's an entertainment session and uh, oh, people flock to hear it and they think he's a great chap and a great man and people say success. It's not success. Let's not judge it before the day. Because only that day will reveal truly what is success. And I know if it's built on wood and hay and stubble, on that day it will be burnt. Don't judge by outward appearances. And I say to all of you again this evening, ask the Lord to help you to see the beauty of Christ and just the glory of free grace. And as we sit around this table tonight, and as we think of the simplicities of the gospel, may the Lord just thrill our souls again and enthrall our hearts again with that wonderful message of redeeming love. As we close this evening, let me encourage you, because there is encouragement in this text, to overcome the dryness of the ground in which the gospel is planted. There's encouragement for us all as Christians. There's encouragement for every, every soul that's battling on for God, seeking to plant the seed in. You're planting the seed in. It's, it's, it's in dry ground. Well, maybe you think your own heart is dry and barren and you lament it before the Lord the seed in. Well, just take encouragement of the secret of God's working, the secret of God's grace. God's grace works in dry ground. If it didn't, we're all... We're all we're all lost, men and women. 
We're all lost. And if your heart feels dry tonight, just look to God afresh to work his grace in it. God can work in the very coldest heart tonight, the very driest spirit tonight. God can work in it and God can revive us and God can encourage us and God can enable us. There's encouragement for every seeking soul. All the fitness you requireth, Joseph Hart's great hymn reminds us, is to feel your need of him. You don't need anything else. Just to know you need him. And if you know you need him, he is the saviour for your soul tonight. That's all you need. Sometimes we, 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 as it were, insist on, on, on sinners have to do A and B and C before they come to the Lord. Faith and repentance is a wonderful thing. The sinner just exercising faith and repentance. We learned that a few weeks ago, that simultaneous work of God's grace in the hearts and lives, just to feel your need of him. And if you know your need of him tonight, come to him. Don't delay one minute longer. Boys and girls, young people, don't delay one second longer. Come to him. And trust in his redeeming blood. There's much encouragement I think. In this day and age that we live in. Because God can take the gospel of grace. And he can plant it in dry ground. And he can flourish it. And he can cause a work of grace. To come forth from it. And you might think the battle is over. In our little land. Even in our own little locality. The battle's over. It's not over men and women. Until the final trumpet sounds. And until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. God takes the gospel. As he did with the Messiah. And he brings it forth out of dry ground. The root out of dry ground. And he can prosper it. Oh what, what encouragement there is for us here. For roots out of dry ground. Can produce great success. Wonderful prophecy in, in Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 22, 24. And I believe this prophecy concerns Christ and it's his cause. And we read, Thus saith the Lord God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. I will crop off the top of his young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and eminent. In the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it, and it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit, and shall be a goodly cedar, and under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing. In the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell, and all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree, and have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. Christ is the one. Who can make it to flourish. I the Lord have spoken of it he said. And the cause of Christ would believe. Well no reviving. I, I believe still in revival. And I believe in renewal. And God can take that root that's been cut off and planted. And he can make it to flourish. Because uh, as we, we were taught many years ago. The end is not yet. It's not yet. And the best praise God is yet. To be. Isaiah 53 verse 2 it opens our eyes to how the world sees Christ but it challenges our hearts as to how we see him. Oh in his humility 
And in his lowliness he comes to us. And he says, I'm enough. And it's his beauty that we should desire. We're not desirous of any other. We're desirous of his beauty. And may our desires find satisfaction and blessing in him tonight. And may we see him at the table tonight. And as we partake of the elements, may, may we know him. May we know his touch upon our lives, upon our souls, and upon our hearts. May the Lord bless these few thoughts from Isaiah 53 verse 2 this evening to all of your hearts and all of your lives. I'd like to sing tonight.